Good afternoon. Happy Father's Day. Man, it is good to see you guys. Thanks for coming and being a part of this. If you're watching online, guys, thank you so much for for being what, being a part of what God is doing here at Cornerstone. Um, I, I need to give you some heads up into what's going to happen today. Um, and a lot of what's going to take place in the next few minutes, we're both going to experience for the first time. Um, we got back from camp last night. I just spent seven days with your students um, up in the mountains in Northern um, California. I um, had an incredible week and somehow on the ride home, we turned about a 12 hour, 13 hour bus ride into about an 18 hour bus ride um, and got home about, I think I got to bed about four o'clock. Um, so this morning, some things are going to be said here and we're both going to witness those things together um, and see kind of what God does with that. Um, so I'm not sure where we're going with this. Um, I hope that it's good. And I'm a little stressed about today, not because of that, but more because I'm supposed to stand up here as a dad and talk to men about what it means to be a, a dad on Father's Day and what it means to be a man. Um, and then I have horrible friends like Ray who make fun of how big my head is, um, which nobody's told me about before today. So I'm a little nervous about that, too. Thank you for being here. Um, I hope you're ready. We're going to go in and we're going to look at some things. But before we do that, um, I noticed a couple of things this last week that, that we need to talk about. Um, one of them directly just involves me mainly, and I just need help, I guess, working through it. And then the rest, the, the second one, I think, involves all of us. Um, I, I noticed over this week of camp um, something really important that some, as my friends, I feel like one of you should have stepped up and talked to me about, and nobody has. Um, I, I noticed this last week that I'm old. Um, and nobody told me this. I feel like I should have got like a six weeks notice somewhere in there like, hey, Tim, um, I turned 44 a couple weeks ago and I feel like somebody should have been like, hey, dude, you're getting there. You got six weeks of good stuff left and then it's all downhill. But nobody did. Um, and I noticed it on Thursday of camp. We were sitting there and Thursday of camp, um, they do basketball tournaments and two of our freshmen run up to me and they're like, Tim, dude, we got to have you. We need you for the three on three basketball tournament. And I was like, well, yeah, of course you do. Um, cause I remember like what it was like to play basketball and I, I'm, I'm a bad man. I remember what it was like to go out, break ankles, cross over and shoot and fade and jump and dunk. I remember those things. Um, and I, I, I'm good. I'm not like Phil Jackson's going to call me today and be like, Hey Tim, we need you. Not that type of good, but I, I'm, I'm a bad man. So when they came up to me, I, I was like, well, of course you do. And I remember walking out under the court and I don't know if they gave these kids crack or like a case of Red Bull, but these dudes are running everywhere. It was like fast forward. They're like moving like crazy and I'm in slow motion. And I'm trying to trip them and I'm not even fast enough to do that. I'm like, what in the world? God, when did this happen? And when it hit me the hardest, I think, was I did what I do. Um, I, I got down and somebody shot and I was going up for a rebound. And I remember jumping in my head. And I remember the last time I did this grabbing the rim. Because I was that kid. I was a kid always hanging on the rim, you know, trying to pop do all that stuff. And I remember jumping. And I don't think my feet left the ground. And as you examine the jump, your feet coming off the ground is pretty important. That's a big part of the jump. Um... And nobody told me, hey, Tim, there's going to come a day that it's going to hit you. And everything that you do up here no longer works out here. And I would have liked to have known that up front, I think. And I'm okay with getting old because, I mean, you get better parking. You get discounts at like the Sizzler. You get you can do stuff and people are like, well, he's old. And you get away with things. So I'm okay with getting old. I just would have liked to have had maybe an extra week. I don't know if you've hit that yet where you're old. And nobody's told you. If you haven't, um, 
You got six weeks. <laughs> Not really. Um, it's scary though to think, when did that happen? And so I, I spent the most of the bus ride back thinking, all right, God, this is a, a really bad joke. When, when did that hit? Um, and then I started thinking through, when, when did, when did we as a church suddenly make being a man less manly? I don't know, men, if you feel like this, but somewhere in history, and I couldn't put a pinpoint on this either, like I tried to plan it out and I tried to like place a pin on this day in history is when it became uncool or became unmanly to say that you love Jesus. And I think now a a lot of the mentality across the world is as a man, when you come to church, you're like, all right, here's my man card. I guess I'll go in and worship Jesus now. Um, I'm going to give my life to Christ. So let me give you this because, you know, I don't need it anymore. Um, I'm Ned Flanders now. I mean, you watch movies. The Rock has never played anybody that represents a Christian man. Um, we always get the skinny dude. And, and he always gets beat up and loses the girl, and the movie's over. You never get this guy that walks out that's like huge. It's like, yes, I love Jesus. And except for Noah, but that doesn't count because it's so weird anyway. But you never get that buff dude that's going to come out and wreck shop, and he represents what it means to be a Christian man. You get Pee Wee Herman looking dude that walks out, and he's like, hi, ho there, friends. And it's not... I don't know when it happens. I can't find it. And when I, when I look through this, I can't find where, where this says that you give up masculinity to, to say that you follow Christ. I, I can't, I, I look and I read through this and I see people like Paul, holy cow, Paul, who said crazy things like, you know what? Hey, if I'm going to die, that's kind of cool. I'll get to see Jesus. But if I get to live, I just get to tell more people. Paul, Paul going into Ephesus and crazy Ephesus where they're probably going to try to kill him. You don't see Paul walking into that going, well, heck fire. That looks awful dangerous. I should check with my danger management person to make sure it's covered in my HMO. I don't want to walk in and not get insurance. No, you see Paul going, well, if they kill me, sweet. You see Jesus going through Samaria and his friends going up going, I don't know, dude, that's not such a good idea. And Jesus looking at him and he doesn't walk up and go, holy cow, I hope they don't kill me. Wow, that'd be horrible. (laughs) That'd really put a cramp around the rest of the afternoon. No, you see Jesus going, whatever, and walking and let's go. You you see this book is full of people who took, who took what this said and put it to heart. I, I think we've made the gospel way too civilized. And I think as men, it's time we take it back. We're, we're going to do some stuff today that, um, ladies, you're not going to understand. And I'm not going to apologize for that up front because you shouldn't understand a lot of what we do as men. We have an extra gene inside of us. It's called the RN gene. And what it does is it makes normal part of our thought process turn redneck. And we need some of it coming back. Men, we need to get the redneck gene flowing inside of us because it's, it's time that we stand up and we start doing some things that we've let slip past from us. Um, let me explain that to you ladies, just so you understand a little bit before we dive in or none of this is going to make sense. You'll walk out to a field women and you'll look and you'll see, and you'll think, Hey, I could plant flowers there. I could put a shrubbery. We could put a tree, maybe a fence. That would be beautiful. Men walk out to the exact same field. And we think, Hey, if we dump 20,000 gallons of water on that, I could race you in my truck. (laughs) And as a man, we hear that and we think, Oh no, it's on. And and we do that. We, We look at a car and we think, Hmm. If we lifted that seven inches and put bigger tires (laughs) and we make noises and we grunt and we scratch stuff that shouldn't itch and we do things that as men probably shouldn't happen. And I know as ladies, you look at us and you think, what in the world are you thinking? We don't know. It's it's the same thing, ladies, as this. Um, You will tell us things that you don't want an answer to. You just need to tell us. 
and you don't want us to help you with it. You just need to tell us. And you don't want us to respond. You don't want us to fix. You just need to tell us. I have no idea why you do that. And no man in this room does. We struggle with that because we want to fix it because that's what God's done in us. He wants us to fix things and you tell us and you don't want us to fix. You just want to tell and we don't get it. That's the same thing when we want to change stuff in our living room and make it look like spider God kingdom by adding speakers everywhere so that our neighbors know what we're watching on TV. Exact same thing. Somewhere though, Christianity has become too civilized. (laughs) And this call to follow Jesus has been a call to come and hear instead of a call to go and do. And I think, honestly, that's the problem with a lot of churches is men don't want to come and listen. They want to go do, and but they're just being told to come and hear. Today, we're not going to come and hear. Today's going to be a challenge for us, and listen to me, for us to go and to do. To do that, um, we're going to look at a story of this guy that we really don't know a whole lot about. We're going to break open God's word here in just a second. And we're going to read about this guy that we just have a very small section of his life. But because of how crazy cool this guy was, we get a small section of his life. And we're going to hopefully men see what it means to take that and maybe apply that. And ladies, hopefully in doing this, you're going to understand us a little bit more. Um, And hopefully it's going to cause you to pray for us a whole lot more. Because we need it. So let's pray and we're going to dive in. Jesus, thank you for... God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for who you are and for what you do. And God, would you help us as we go through this journey together in these next few minutes as a family? God, would you help us to know what it means to be courageous? And God, to know what it means to follow you and not worry about what the world says. So Jesus, we need your help. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you got a Bible, man, go to 1 Chronicles. We're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. It's in the Old Testament, so kind of break it open in the middle. Work your way back just a little bit. If you go to 2 Chronicles, (laughs) go back just a little bit more. If you have this Bible, it's on page 350. I don't know if that helps anybody. 1 Chronicles, we're going to be in chapter 11. Um, We're going to look at the, the call to Christ because I think it's an invitation. It's a revolutionary call to go out and to fight for the heart of humanity. And that's my, that's my dream and my desire for us as men is that we go out of here with a desire to do stuff. Um, the last day of camp on Friday night, and I, I just got to paint this picture because it's hopefully it's going to make this story make more sense to you. The last Friday of camp, we go to this place that's in the top of the mountains and we're in the middle of the redwood forest, humongous trees everywhere. And they've carved out a circle that makes like an amphitheater. And, and we take your, your, your sons and your nephews and your little brothers up there, about 500 of them. And we crowd them in this amphitheater and there's this dude named Rich Baker. And Rich talks like this. And it's not because he's a chain smoker, it's because he's talked like this his whole life. He's done so many camps, his voice is just messed up and everything he says sounds like this. And he goes in and Rich walks out and you've got 500 guys around this huge fire because we're men and that's what we do is we build fires. And Rich walks out and he's like, all right, men, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to challenge you guys to stop being boys and to step up and be men. And all these guys, these little kids, you can just see their eyes like get wide, especially the freshmen. They're scared to death. Their eyes start to get bigger. We're, like, we're going to go in and we're going to go out and we're going to be courageous. Because that's what God's called us to be, is be courageous. And then in the background you hear this. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And then you start to see these, these voices start to rise up. Men, 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 men. Men, men, men. Men, men, men. And then this battle cry. Viking-like. 
picks up just this raw and these guys start screaming and they just start yelling it sounds like we're about to destroy a city and these kids are dude we're a fire i'm running out of there like looking for like a bear to jump on and just wrestle it's the coolest most barbaric thing that we do at camp and i love it because it's we're challenging men to step up and be men this is the story in first chronicles 11 about somebody who does that he steps up he rises up and he does what god has built us as men to do which is be courageous. It's in First Chronicles 11. <clears throat> I shouldn't have grunted like that. That hurt. Um, pick it up in verse 22. That's what we're going to read through. And, and know this, men. It's okay in this moment to be a man. If you need to grunt at any moment during this message, knock yourself out. Ladies, you're going to have to give us some slack because it's what we do. Feel free to be a man in this as we read through it. Verse 22 says this. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel. That's sick already, huh? Valiant fighter from Kabzeel. Can't you just see the rock like walking out, bouncing his chest and be like, uh, making noises like a man about to kill folks. Valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went out into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down an Egyptian who was an 11, I'm sorry, who was seven and a half feet tall. That's messed up. Seven and a half feet tall. And Benaniah goes up. He strikes him down. It says, although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaniah went against him with a club. Dude's bad. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and he killed him with his own spear. Mm. Why don't we have movies about that? That's a whole other message. Um, verse 24. Such were the exploits of Benaniah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30. But he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. This is all we have of the life of a man named Benaniah. We don't know anything else about him. We know that his dad's name was Jehoiada, which is kind of messed up. It's kind of a jacked up name. You don't name that's really not a common name nowadays. We know that Benaniah most likely is somewhere in the lineage of Chuck Norris because he walks into Moab and he's like, where's the two baddest? Let's go. And he kills them. Normal people don't do that. Chuck Norris ancestors do. We know that Benaniah walks into Egypt and he's like, all right, who's the biggest? Who's the baddest? (laughs) Tiny. Come on. And to a seven and a half foot giant, this guy goes up, takes his spear from him. It says it's like a weaver's rod. It's like a two by four. He goes up to the seven and a half foot tall man, takes his spear from him, and then kills him with his own spear. When you get beat up with your own weapon, you lost. Kills a man with his own spear. And then there's this little sentence that's thrown in there. It's kind of weird. Kind of funny. I don't know. Kills two of Moab's greatest men, which Moab, just so you know, that was like the people who they're known for fighting. They're known for being bad. They're known for being tough. Kills the two baddest dudes there. Oh, and he also went down in a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Men, um, what are your two men of Moab? What's that look like in your world? What's your seven and a half foot tall giants looking like? We all have them. They just all come at us in different ways because we all have different things that come to us that take on the the appearance of two bad things that we can't destroy. They, we all have seven and a half foot tall giants that come before us and they yell and they scream that try to distract us from God-ordained risks. And as men, what's become the, the norm is that we shrink away instead of rising up and fighting. And I love that about Benaniah because as this happens, he walks into Moab and he sees two men. He doesn't come up with excuses. 
well, my partner's got the flu, so you know what? I'm going to come back after you two tomorrow when he feels better. I'm outmanned. I can't, I can't go in at that. Dude, seven and a half feet tall. I ain't going to fight him. Why don't you fight him? You don't, you don't see any of that. This dude walks in and takes these, these risks. He takes these God-ordained moments where he steps up and has 20 seconds of courage, where he goes in and does crazy things, and we're reading about him now because of it. What are yours? As dads, a lot of it may just be stepping up and being a godly man at home and being that godly voice to our kids. Maybe a giant in your house, maybe a fighter from Moab, maybe a lion to you is having that conversation you know you need to have with your kids that's difficult. Hey, you're on a path that's not going to be good. I've seen it. And we're afraid to go into that conversation because we don't know how it's going to turn out and we're scared. So instead of having that conversation, we shrink back. Maybe it's a relationship where it's easier to go into the room and watch the World Cup than it is to sit down and listen to your wife. Or to listen to your kids or to spend time with them. And I'm not saying watching the World Cup's bad. It's not as fun as baseball, but I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying maybe our maybe our giant is not spending enough time with our family. Single men, maybe our giant is not guarding her purity like it was a seven and a half foot tall beast that wants to destroy us. And not protecting what God has, has blessed us with. I don't know what your giants are. We all have we all have different things that come up before us. I, I love this this little sentence that's thrown in about the lion. Um, I got to go to Africa a couple of times with the church and take some students last year. And I remember driving through, and we're on we're, we're out in the in the we're driving in these safari vans. And I remember, gosh, I remember this so vividly, driving up to these pack of male lions that are underneath a tree. And we're like 10 feet from them. And we're not like in a huge Jeep, like Range Rover safari van. We're in like a Toyota safari van. So I remember driving up and I remember my thought being, this is like, I feel like a sardine. Kind of like maybe I'm a TV dinner for this dude. Because if that thing gets mad, there's no way Toyota is going to protect me against a lion attack. And I remember watching them. And I remember them getting up and seeing the muscles ripple across their back. If you haven't seen a lion in person up close... It's the scariest thing I've ever seen. Terrifying. I remember one of our teams getting to watch a lion hunt and seeing this male lion jump on the back of a water buffalo and grab it and throw it down like a middle linebacker and just destroy this thing. It was awesome. I remember, man, I remember seeing that thing move and never and never in my mind did I ever think, huh, I wonder if he would unlock the door. And I wonder if our driver would let me go wrestle that. That thought never came into my head. I never looked at this thing and at any moment in my life thought, you know, I'm like really good at UFC on Xbox. I bet I could kill that. Never once did that enter into my head because I'm seeing this thing with these muscles just ripple. I'm seeing this thing that God built and he designed for really for one thing. Well, for two things, one to look cool and two to kill stuff. You see, the lions in Israel are about 400 pounds. They're they're big animals. They've got huge feet with these enormous claws that come off of them. And the the whole point of the claw isn't to like, you know, give them traction. It's to rip and tear stuff. They've got these enormous mouths with these 
humongous fangs and teeth and these crazy strong jaws that are designed to just bite in and grab and to rip. They've got these huge muscles that are designed to make them move laterally really quick, to move faster than you, to jump and to run faster than we can even think possible. They're designed to tear stuff up and destroy. (laughs) They've got these huge pads on their feet and it's designed that when they walk, it gives them traction. And it's designed for when they're in moments like this where it's snowy, that they can move with ease and they can, they can cut and they can do stuff that we can't because we'd slip. And you've got this guy, Benaniah, who walks out one afternoon and he sees this line and his first instinct isn't to run. His first thought in his mind is, hmm, I'm going to kill that. And he chases it. Who does that? Seriously, who, who thinks to themselves, huh, I wonder who would win, and goes. Man, do you understand that this is what God has built us to do? God has built us to not shrink back in fear and to cower, but to go out to attack and to destroy. He's built us with this innate desire to go out and to conquer. He's built us with this desire to go out and to be men, to rise up, to make noises, to go out and to be manly and to do things like this. And so many times we walk up and we see the line and instead of chasing it, we do what 99% of every other man would do is we turn and we run or we shut the door and pretend it didn't happen. Because I wonder how many men walked out, saw this exact same line and thought, oh no, and closed the door and pretend like, oh yeah, hold up, I got a phone call. I wonder how many men saw this line and did nothing. We don't know because we're not reading about him because we're reading about the dude who went out and killed it. And he didn't just kill it, he chased it down in the snow into a pit and killed it. You understand that he was outweighed, he was outmuscled. Lions have eyes that, that allow them to see better at nighttime so the lion could see better than Benaniah. The lion had better traction in the snow than Benaniah. And Benaniah at one point in time did exactly what I think God has built us to do, which is where you walk up to the edge of the pit and he jumped in knowing that I can't get out of here. He jumped in with one thought in mind and that wasn't, hey, I wonder if I can tame this and take it home. It was, I'm going to destroy that. <laughs> Men, what if we had that same attitude towards the things that that rise up in our life that we cower from? And honestly, I I think society has a lot to play in it because it does, man. It portrays us as wimps. And so we've slowly been integrated into, well, we can't be a man because we've got to be all passive and easygoing and smooth and we've got to be something that God hasn't really desired or built us to be. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you go out and you start beating stuff up and destroying things. That's not where I'm going with this at all. I'm just saying that God has, there's God-ordained risks in our life that look like lines to us, that look like things that should intimidate us, that should scare us. And there's moments in our life where if we don't do something with God's help, we're going to be destroyed. Kind of like Ben and I in here. If God doesn't show up as he's fighting the two men of Moab, he's done. If God doesn't show up as he's fighting the Egyptian, he's finished. If God doesn't show up in that pit, this lion just had like fast food. When was the last time, men, that we stood, we stood up and we took, and listen to me, we took a God-ordained risk, knowing that if God didn't show up, we, we were done. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, kind of how this works because if you notice again that's a weird sentence that you know he killed moab guys and then he killed a lion in a pit in the snow the very end of verse 25 it's just got another one of those little subtle sentences thrown in 
It says, and David put him in charge of his bodyguard. David, the king, possibly Israel's greatest king. David, the little boy with the slingshot that walked up to the giant Goliath, and he was like, not on my watch, and smacked him with a, with a slingshot. Little tiny David. Israel's warrior that went out and destroyed people. Man, little David, the mighty, valiant warrior David, is sitting there one day thinking, huh, I really need a chief bodyguard. I wonder who could help my guys, you know, be my bodyguard. I wonder who that could be. And he notices Benaniah. And I don't know if he noticed him killing the guys of Moab, if he killed the giant. I guarantee you, though, that somebody was talking about it. Because that's what men, that's what we do. And something along there got the king's attention. Got the king's eye. And the king knew who he had in Benaniah. And so he put Benaniah in a place of authority. This is where the story gets weird. Men, you understand that the king sees the same thing in you. I'm not talking about David. He's dead. I'm talking about the king. The creator of the universe, king. God himself sees in us the innate ability to be lion changers. To be lion chasers. To be courageous. To go out as Rich talked to us just... Just a couple days ago to be courageous and to step out and to to step up to the ledge and jump and to take that God ordained risk and to go out and to do things that normal people look at and think, I don't think so. To be a lion, God, the king himself sees that in us, all of us. And it doesn't matter if you're old and you've hit that stage where you're like, man, I'm not as bad as I used to be. It doesn't matter if you're young where you think you're better than you are. It doesn't matter where you fit in life in this. The king sees that in you. And the proof of that is, is how he. It's how he talks to us. Um, one of the scariest things, ladies, for us is when we meet you. <laughs> you have no idea how scared we are. We hide it like with a ghetto walk or we, you know, we try to get like the limp on where we're like, uh, and we try to like look good. I, don't, I can't do it because I'm old. Um, but we, we try to do something to get your attention. And, and there's a 20 seconds scariest moment in our life where we see you and we're like, Oh, and we want to meet you. And that's where I think our grunting noises begin is when we first see that woman that we're attracted to. We're like, oh, and we make that grunting noise. And it starts, and we have 20 seconds where we've got to take that moment where we walk over to you, and we're making up what we're going to say along the way. And if we're Christian, we try to be real creative, like, hey, I was reading through numbers. I noticed yours wasn't there. <laughs> and then we get slapped, and then we go home by ourselves and watch reruns. But we got that 20 seconds where we're trying to make something up to come to you. And so we're walking up to you and we're trying to think, what can I say that's going to get her attention? What, how can I word this where she'll have dinner with me? And we, we make it up on the way and there's so much fear where we're like, hey, how you doing? And usually it's, hey, how you, how you doing? So we're scared to death. And then the relationships, men, remember, you, you do it though, and, and it works, because somehow she's like, yeah, let's go eat, and, and it happens. And you start having that relationship, and you guys start hanging out, and, and you go from this moment where you like her, and then you like, like her, and then you like, like her, and then you put it on Facebook so everybody knows that you like her. And then, I don't know when it happens, I don't know how it happens, but you don't like her anymore. You don't even like, like her anymore. It's gone to love. And you know it's gone to love, because every time you see her, you're like, mmm. And you can't stop thinking about it. You see a box of Cheerios and you're like, hmm. You're watching reruns of Seinfeld and you're like, oh, where's she at? You, everything, everything brings you back to her somehow. And it goes to that moment where you're stuck in that moment of no longer liking her but loving her and you want to tell her. And it's the, it's the deadliest moment ever for a guy because as soon as you say those three powerful words, you are done as a man. You can no longer go back and be a friend at that moment. It's not like, hey, I love you. Could you pass the beans? It's like, hey, I love you. And once you throw that out there to her, if it doesn't get returned, 
you're done. I mean, you're in the weird zone for the rest of the relationship. And as men, we're sitting there going, did she say it back? She sneezed. Does that mean she loves me? You have that moment. Men, remember? You saw her and you're like, oh. And your palms are sweaty. Your heads are... I mean, you're just like, oh, what do I say? And you and you, you just... I love you. And you throw it out there so quick, probably, just because you, you want it to be confused, possibly if she doesn't agree. Um, so you have hope left. Scariest thing in the world for a man. That's the biggest line, possibly, men that we face, is, is that moment of 20 seconds of, of, of bravery. You understand that the king said that to you first. The king who sees in you the ability to be a lion chaser. The king who sees in you the ability to go out and and to be this, this man that he's desired and built you to be. This woman that he's desired and he's built you to be. That he looked at you first and said that he loves you. That you never had to do anything to get his attention. You've had his attention since before you were born. You had his attention when he thought of you and he began to form and make you. And his first conversation with you was, I love you. And it doesn't matter how screwed up you are. Honestly, it's because you're so screwed up, that's why he said, I love you. Because he knows that we're messed up. And he didn't just say it. Because how many times have you heard that? Oh, I love you. And yeah, like you love donuts. It's it's, it's not the same thing. He didn't just say it. He said it with Jesus, with this gift of his son. T- turn in First John. I want to show you this because this, this is cool. Go to First John 4 real quick. Way to the, to the right. If you get to a dictionary, that's too far. Go back to the left a little bit. First John 4, I, I want you to see this because this is, th- this is powerful. The king... Guys, this is the creator of everything. This is the creator of the universe, the God himself who spoke things into existence. His first utterance to you wasn't, you're, you're useless, you're, you're, you're useless, you, you can't do anything for me. It wasn't, man, your past, if you didn't do that, if only that wasn't there, man, then we could do so much. His first conversation with you wasn't, man, I wish you were more like your brother. His first conversation with you wasn't any of those things. His first conversation to you was, I love you. Look, look in First John 4, verse 9. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And listen to this. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God. Did you catch that? Not that we loved God. But he loved us. And sent his son as an an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not that we loved God. But he loved us. You understand that the first conversation God threw out to us was that awkward moment where he said, I love you. And he's been chasing you ever since birth, trying to see if you're going to reciprocate that love back. And it doesn't matter how messed up you are. It doesn't matter how checkered your past is. It doesn't matter how checkered your present is. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. It doesn't matter how many times you stood up in front of the line and you were like, nope. And you turn around and ran. It doesn't matter how many battles you've lost. It doesn't matter how many battles you've won. None of that matters. His first conversation with you was, I love you. And he proved it, not just by saying it, by stepping out of heaven and coming down and laying his life on a cross. And I have a hard time believing that Jesus died on the cross just so that we could have rules to try to be better people. I have a hard time to believe in that Jesus went through all the agony that the cross gave him just so we could have a set of commandments to try to follow so that we look better than our neighbors. The whole point of it was 
part of the conversation with you. I love you. Some of you have never heard that before. Or maybe you've had and you thought maybe that works good for them because they're lion chasers. That's what they do. They're not near as screwed up as I am. You understand Jesus had that conversation with you because you're messed up. And he doesn't love you because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. I say that all the time. It doesn't matter who we are. God loves us because of who he is. And he threw it out there to us first. The king noticed you. He noticed you when he built you. He noticed you when he created you. And men, he gave us some weird desires. (laughs) He did. He gave us the desire to take a minivan and to raise it up, put 22s on it and spinners and to make it cool. That's part of what God does in men is a desire. He's built the desire and, and refined and worked in us since before we were born. Jeremiah 1 5 says that while we were in the womb of our mother that God knew us and that he formed us And he throws out there at the very beginning of it this beautiful conversation of hey, I love you (laughs) Let me show you And maybe You've ran from that your entire life because you thought he couldn't love you Maybe that's why father's day is here and why you're here today because the truth is, the, the, the truth is in the proof. And that's that a, a beautiful creator of the universe became uncivilized and came and broke the law of sin and died for us. And died to pay back all the things that keep us inadequate, all the things that make us not worthy, all the things that make us look at a battle and think, I can't fight that, there's no way I can win. All of those things... The king started the conversation with, hey, I love you. What if today for Father's Day, we just begin that conversation with him? All right, God, you love me, so make me courageous. Let me give you some things to be courageous about, men. Instead of going home and jumping straight into television, why not spend some time with your family? Invest in your kids. And I don't mean financially, I mean with your time. Spend some time with them. Talk to them. Teach them as men what it means to love God. Teach them as men what it means to grow up and be a man after God's own heart. I'm praying that my son is a better Christian than I am. I want my son so bad to grow up and to love Jesus so much better than I do. I hope that I love Jesus better than my dad. I pray that my daughters see in me. A man that loves Jesus so passionately that it becomes a desire for them as they start looking for a boyfriend somewhere like when they're 50 and they start looking for that moment. (laughs) So scary. They look for a man that chases Jesus. Maybe it's time as men. Maybe that's our our line. Investing time in our kids and our family and showing them what it means to love God. Maybe as men, maybe our line is investing just quality time with our wife. And maybe, men, as hard as it is, it means we listen and we don't fix. And we don't understand it, for sure. But we do it because that's that's what we do. Maybe it's the biggest line ever. And that's Sunday morning, you get your family up, and you wake them up on a Sunday when they all want to sleep. And you wrestle them in a car. And you drag them to hear about Jesus. I don't know what your lines look like. Or your giants, or your men of Moab. I know that all of us have different ones. My challenge to you today is the same challenge that Rich gave. Be courageous. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for um, 
God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us. God, thank you so much for the fact that it's not because of who we are. It's not because of what we do. None of those things, God, got your attention. Um, God, we got your attention the moment that you thought of us, the moment that you made us. So God, would you forgive me personally for making Christianity civilized, God, and for being most of the time afraid and scared to step up and to say something in a moment when I know I should? God, would you forgive me for the times that as a dad I don't act like I should? God, would you help me to be more like Benaniah and more like what we just talked about, more of a lion chaser? And God, would you help us in this moment as men to, and to take back what you established through men like Paul, like Matthew, like Peter, like Benaniah. God, would you allow us to take back that, that manly part of being a follower of Christ and to be an example to this world, what it means to love you passionately and, and to be in life, God, what it means to be a man that takes risks. And that takes God-ordained risks and does things hoping for you to show up and waiting and watching, waiting for you to be faithful. So God, would you help us in this moment as men and women that love you to be, to be courageous. And God, if anyone in this moment is still fighting the fact that you love them, would you let just that nugget of truth sink in right now? That not only do you love them, but you threw that out there first, just waiting to see when they're going to bring that back. So God, in this moment, in this moment, Jesus, will you help us to just understand a little bit of what it means to be courageous and to know that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.